0: Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Linnert, and you're listening to Incredible Life Creator Podcast. My guest today is Rod Turner. Rod Turner is a seasoned serial entrepreneur and founder and CEO of Manhattan Street Capital, the number one growth capital marketplace. He helps CEOs raise capital via IPOs and Regulation a for mature startups and mid-sized companies. He is also an expert in M&A. He was a senior executive for two successful tech IPOs to the NASDAQ, Symantec and Ashton Tate. Turner has played a key role in building startups to scale, including Semantic Norton, Ashton Tate, Microport, Knowledge Adventure, and more. He is an experienced investor who has built a venture capital business, Irvine Ventures, and has made angel and mezzanine investments in companies such as Bloom, Amaris, Ask and EASIC. He lives in San Diego with his wife and two sons. Welcome to the podcast, Rod.
1: Thank you, Kimberly, it's great to be here. Yep.
0: So Rod, you have quite an extensive resume and a lot of experiences in your life. Would you please tell uh, yeah. us a little bit about you and, and like where you started, sure. where you grew up? How you sure, got that. sure.
1: So I grew up on a, on a farm in England in the southwest of the country. And um, it was a very nice place to to grow up from a quality of life standpoint, relatively isolated socially, so we tended to value people, uh, uh, which is a nice thing too. Um, And then I moved, I became, uh, my first career was uh, as an engineer. I started my apprenticeship at age 15, left home, became a professional engineer on a nuclear power station in the UK. Um, And then I moved into whilst in the uk moved into selling computers because i wanted to progress my career faster than i could as an engineer or at least and i thought i could Um, and then i moved to the us at the age of 23 to uh, further my career and then i joined and i got into startup companies a year and a half after i arrived in the states i joined my first startup company tech company and then I, I, I that was kind of a big deal uh, in terms of change of direction that's where my career began to take off had a lot of good fortune my first startup company was this company ashton Tate, that you mentioned and uh, we went public uh, and on the nasdaq and we we became the third largest microcomputer software company in the world our product our lead product was called dbase dbase 2 dbase 3 uh, which was at that at that time we built it to be the market-leading database on microcomputers, um, and then I went on to other startup companies. I've done, I played a key role in building six successful startup companies, including Ashton-Tate and Symantec, but others that we took and uh, sold uh, and created liquid outcomes for our investors and for our founders. Um, as well as the venture firm you mentioned. Um, So I've lived in in California since I moved to the States. I've always been in California, Southern California, Northern California, Silicon Valley, and uh, San Diego in more recent years. Um, So I feel fortunate in that I have the mind of an engineer, you know, the thought process of an engineer, which I guess lends it causes me to want to be to be interested in how things are the way they are and how to make them better and I've been able to learn non-engineering skills you know sales and marketing and management and leadership and finance and operations and entrepreneurship and um, I feel very fortunate in that respect Uh, it's great to have a broad skill base and to have the to been able and to be able to learn new things as I needed to. It's uh, been super. And uh, I love that. Mm
0: -hmm. Awesome. So yeah, that is quite a journey from engineering into sales, into building companies. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're doing all that and you also have a family. Mm -hmm. So how how does someone as busy as you are, and the successful you the are, manage having your family and creating really um, quality family times along with getting things done at work.
1: I would say, you know, I, I don't consider myself a standout example uh, in that regard. I've had some good luck and you know, partly that, um, you know, my career really kicked in. The gear around the age, age 25, 24, 25 is when it kicked off, and accelerated, and I, I wasn't, I was not married, with, with, and I wasn't having kids then, I wasn't ready, I wasn't emotionally ready, <laughs> even if I had met the right woman at the right time, so um, that was, it was good because I had, you know, during the most intense period when I was traveling lots of the time, gone 50%, 60% of the time, uh, it wasn't impacting fam- my my young family because I didn't have one, right? Mm-hmm. And then by the time I did settle down, I was already pretty successful financially and business wise, and so that helped. It helped a great deal. Although I was still busy, but I was, you know, I was able to change my priorities around. If I had been, you know, really maxed out in my career at the same time as having, you know, the young children, it would have been more challenging. So a lot of the time with the ch- when the children were young, I was working from a home office. So I was around a lot. And um, so, you know, I think I've had it easier than many, probably, in in that respect. It was kind of sequential. I didn't get married till I was 40. And uh, so that helped. You know, it wasn't part of a big master plan. It was kind of the way it evolved. But there have certainly been times more recently, you know, launching this company. my, My current startup, Manhattan Street Capital, it's a little bit mature now, I suppose, four and a half years in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been, and the startup before it. Uh, it's been a pretty intense period where I've been working long hours, uh, but I've been able to do it from you know near home or, or a home office a lot of the time, and that's helped. And um, you know, so I've basically my life has been a lot to a large uh, to a large extent. My life has been the kids, uh, my my wife, my marriage. You know. Uh, working out and my business and not much else you know not that much time for other things but that's life right you prioritize what matters most there have been other times when I was uh, more indulging myself with my friendships and things you know and building and nurturing friendships better than I have I have a lot of friendships through business I I enjoy meeting people and learning from them in business as well as non-business situations so you know i have a I, i'm kind of a social person i enjoy all of that
0: yes yes and um tell me a little bit more about um what you're doing now the manhattan street capital and mm-hmm. you know what it does and how it works like who your customers are
1: mm-hmm. so we in in the year 2015 the the federal securities regulator for stock sales and things uh, the sec introduced Regulation A plus as a rule system as a result of the Jobs Act that was enacted in 2012. Um, And Regulation A plus is pretty cool. It's a really well-written regulation, in my opinion. And it enables companies, uh, early-stage companies, although I feel like it lends itself more to companies that are a little better established, but it enables companies, to. they're allowed now to market themselves to investors of any wealth level anywhere around the world, particularly in the US because that's where the law is enacted. So a company, if it's appealing to investors and if it's doing something worthwhile, you know, it's a very public forum, very transparent access to information, which is the way it should be. So good companies that happen to be in a model or have a model where what they do is explainable and appeals. Regular people can relatively easily raise capital up to a maximum of fifty million five hundred per annum, which is you know you could do one every year. So that's a lot of capital, actually. Mm-hmm. So when that regulation was enacted, uh, I learned about it in March of twenty fifteen. Then I decided to launch this company in April. I went live. We we launched the company in twenty uh, April of twenty fifteen. Went live in May as the first dedicated Regulation A plus funding platform. So we help companies do that. We help companies figure out if they should sell shares or debt instruments to investors by this method, by Regulation A plus primarily. And if they want to work with us, we help them to do that and bring in all the different providers, you know, the attorneys, the auditors, the appropriate broker dealers or underwriters. It's uh, And we and the marketing agencies, all the different resources that are involved, we bring them all together. We integrate them together, manage project, manage the process. It's it's a very regulated space, so we're limited as to what we can do. There are things we cannot do, Um, so we live within those rules, and uh, we charge modest fees. The idea, really, in my view, is that we're helping reduce the the difficulty and the cost for companies to raise money by selling shares and helping them access investors that might like what they do. So it's pretty cool. You know, it's very democratic. It's all about, you know, is it a great company? It's not about where is it situated? You know, are you near a venture hub? Does it factor in, you know, is it led by a minority or led by a, uh, a woman or what? It doesn't matter. It's all about how great it is. If it's good, it'll, you know, and if it can be explained online effectively, and if it resonates with investors, you'll raise the money. Right. It's all about a lot of careful execution. So I, I like that. And, you know, there's so many companies that need this kind of opportunity. Um, and it's been, Reggae Plus has been extended as of December 2018 to an, allow public companies to do secondary offerings using Reg Plus. So uh, companies can less expensively do a secondary or another secondary or, no, or another secondary whilst it's already public, when it makes sense to do so. So that's another neat expansion of its use. Lots of companies can use this successfully. Lots of companies can't either. You know, if it's too complicated, too murky, too boring, then maybe that's not going to fly. But um, biotech companies, which can really appeal to main street investors because they do, they're dealing with horrible things like Alzheimer's or cancer, you know, or addictive pain medicine. Um, They can appeal very strongly. And, Real estate companies have done very well. Over sixty percent of the capital raised in Reggae Plus has been for real estate offerings to date. So that's kind of that's kind of that is what we do. We help companies with the platform, with all the back end logistics, as well as with uh, pulling in the service providers and project managing the whole thing to maximize success.
0: That's wonderful. So you're taking care of the regulations and making sure they're complying, so they don't have to be studying the law or trying to figure out. What
1: to do? Yes, yes. We advise and train and orient the CEOs and their management teams. Of course, they still have to toe the line, you know, and they still have to do make the effort. And when there's no such thing as 100% perfection, but we're on it, and we understand what needs to be done, and we focus their attention on the things that matter, uh, so that they're educated, right? So they don't, you know, it is risky for companies to do it themselves because there's so much to learn. Uh, and they don't have a very high success rate. Companies that do it on their own, you know, it's like anything. You go try to fix your your car engine if, you don't, if you're don't you not an expert in fixing car engines. The likelihood of a successful, cost-effective outcome is rather low. So that's that's how we help. That's where we play a role. Mm-hmm.
0: And so let's say there's a company that's wondering if they're a candidate for that. Do you have, mm-hmm. like, a questionnaire they go through or something? How do you decide which companies you can work with and which you can. I did hear you say that it has to be something that can be sold or that people want or they understand. I got that part. Yeah. But let's say there's a company that's wondering if they're a good fit.
1: Yeah, so on um, I'll answer that question in two ways. Um uh, manhattanstreetcapital.com, uh the website has extensive blogs and FAQ posts. Uh, it is these I think it's the best source of information about reggae and raising money and should you do it and how it works and what it costs and how long it takes and so forth we put a lot of effort into that so people find us all the time and approach us and ask us should they do it what's it like as you know ask further questions Um, so we're a rich resource for companies to self educate CFOs and CEOs to go check it out Um, in addition but to answer your question directly um, because well there are, there are really two kinds of companies that can effectively raise money. Those that already have a large following of fans or customers that are very happy with them um, because it's very easy for them to reach out and say, hey, we're raising money, would you like to invest And, and in order to do that? So the, the best example that comes to mind for me is for that of that is a company called VidAngel where they raised $10 million in about 10 or 12 days online online for about five days and then a break of about a week because they had a logistics problem and then they reopened and total 10 or 12 days to raise 10 million from emailing their 30,000 most happy customers, most active customers. Um, so their marketing cost was almost zero. They created a beautiful offering a great video mm-hmm. and they were an inter- and are an interesting company. Um, so that's the most cost effective marketing example I can lay my hands on. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to the more regular situation, which is no fan base or at least a tiny one, you know, small customer base, because we haven't built one yet. Uh, then in that case, it's 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 more a matter of okay, can we? Is it possible to create an offering page that clearly explain explains what you do? Uh, is it possible to explain what you do in uh, social media advertising succinctly? Because if it's so bloody complicated, it's. Just, my language if it's so complicated that it takes a you know two or three paragraphs to explain what you do then probably it's not going to work in social media you can't grab people's attention with two or three paragraphs in an ad it's got to be succinctly explainable so if it's something we're treat where we, we have a cure for Alzheimer's okay nobody does yet right? but that would be pretty straightforward claim at least yeah we have a treatment for triple A negative breast cancer. You know, that's a motivating statement. It's going to get people interested. And then if what they find when they go to the offering page is credible, is appealing and and explained clearly and uh, succinctly. And if the offering is uh, put together in such a way that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand it, then we are looking good, right? Real estate is another example where many people understand real estate and would like more exposure to it. But don't have enough money or enough time necessarily to go out and buy another building, you know, or buy another house. So, um, those are examples. Those are good examples. Um, You know, we've we've helped a biotech company which has a non-addictive, non-opioid-based pain reliever medicine, where and its first use is for surgeons to insert where they do surgery they implant this this medicine and it gradually releases over time it's an early stage clinical trial but it gradually releases itself in the body so the patient when they go home don't have to take opioid based painkillers and get addicted to and get sedated by them the pain work the pain killing is done where the pain is so that's a pretty graceful idea early stage still right all those risks because it's going to take a while to get fda if it does get fda approval but you can easily explain it and it appeals you know in with the opioid epidemic we have going on so in that case their cost of marketing has been very low because uh, that company does something that people care about main street investors want to vote with their feet and support that as that solution even though it's not guaranteed to succeed right so those are examples. Uh, other co- other times, companies, didn't, especially in real estate, but there are other examples where they can afford to pay a dividend in today's low interest rate environment. If you can earn 8 or 10%, uh, even better if it's paid monthly, a lot of people would like to invest in that. If they believe in the company underlying it, then it's more about the return as long as they believe in the company being stable enough and they're not as hung up then maybe – on the details of the company as long as it's stable enough to deliver that uh, dividend return so those kinds of things matter Mm -hmm. um explainable does it appeal is it motivating you know if it become if it's a b2b business okay that's a bit more of a stretch if it's a boring b2b business it's a bigger Mm -hmm. stretch you know so you know Truck routing software for garbage disposal trucks probably not going to matter too much to the consumer investor, the Main Street investor. Might be a great company, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy to explain or we're going to be easily able to raise the capital for it. Thanks.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, let's say a company is not at the point where they can use your services yet, they're just mm-hmm. starting out. So, that one company you talked about where they raised the t- up to $10 million. Mm -hmm. um what is their best way to get to that point um you know i know they want to build a fan base but is like crowdfunding an option or what what it depends
1: it it depends you know some companies uh lend themselves to crowdfunding and they'll be if they can successfully crowdfund themselves they're probably a very good candidate for using reggae plus, right? The same kind of things apply. If you can, if it's appealing to people to donate money in a crowdfunding thing on Kickstarter, then it's probably appealing to regular main street investors to invest money too. Um, so that's a great place where it fits. Um, another one is typically going to friends and family or angel investors, uh, and occasionally early stage venture investors. That's rare. You know mostly venture capital investing is done later you know where it's already proven mm. um, so mostly it is it ends up being people that they know you know they go find build a network or approach their network of friends and colleagues and associates and raise money um that is tough right it's always tough to raise money but it, it, it is possible in some situations to to do an early stage company in reggae plus, but you still have to have the money to spend the money to do it all because mm-hmm. you know, I, I recommend at least $300,000 up front on hand to pay all the marketing audits and other in, incidental expenses to get, to get going in a reggae plus of course you can do it for less. And if you're raising less, a smaller amount of money, you can do it for less, but it's better to have enough money to do it right. Um, which does filter out some companies, you know, it's mm-hmm. my, it's my intention to establish a venture lending fund that will, uh, in, in select cases, lend money and invest money in companies that are a bit too early to help them do their reggae pluses. But I have yet to do that. Right. That's an intention. I haven't done it. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. oh, that's something still you're thinking of when you said yeah. the word marketing it. Um, reminded me of something I I, I read about you about, um, is it Art Slant? Yes, where um, one of the things you did is you increased the site page views by 700 Mm percent. And I thought to myself, I bet you the listeners would like to know at least a little secret of something of how you did that.
1: Well, it was fun. Um, That company, we did everything on a shoestring from the beginning. You know, Um, I wasn't looking for getting back. I had been in a semi-retired state mentoring, guiding companies. I wasn't looking for a full-time gig, but I ended up joining the company, investing in it, becoming the CEO and driving all the marketing uh, and a lot of uh, new programs. So it was, there was a lot of fun involved in that. And let me, you know, I would say, The biggest things that we did there that gained momentum were, uh, reducing the cost of advertising dramatically. So at the beginning, the cost per click was, you know, 30 $40 per uh, art collector and uh, gather art collector visiting the site, which is pretty expensive stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, We got it down to probably five or six cents over time that was great right you know and that was a lot of fun the engineer in me was having fun tweaking this and adjusting that and paying close attention to uh, the digital marketing digital advertising we established a uh, series of programs one of you know essentially in the art world art slant contemporary art Uh, it's a lot about who the the people that need to make a name for themselves are the unknown artists. They want to emerge from the crowd in order to be able to sell their art, and that's a big challenge. Mm -hmm. So we provided services to them and to galleries, but mostly it was about providing free services to established artists and established galleries for collectors' benefit, art collectors' benefit, in order to establish a credibility, a critical mass of art, then leveraging that to bring in and encourage emerging artists to spend, spend modest amounts of money because that's all they have to promote themselves and advertise themselves on our website, which they did. Um, but to me, the biggest experience, the most fun experience that I had with that, which was a big learning experience, was that a lot of the skills I had learned in other areas, in technology startup companies, uh, businesses, business-to-business uses and relatively boring things in, in some ways apply directly to this art company. That was fun. I, I made, yeah, made me made me feel quite empowered. But also, I had this major breakthrough where we were running ads, uh, emails, we were sending emails out to our ever-growing list of art galleries and collectors, but especially to the emerging artists, because they were the ones that would spend money, modest amount of it, but would spend money to advertise with us. And um, I had this amazing experience where we put together a reference uh, uh, email, which showed these three emerging artists and how they had had great success using Artsland. And here's the true story of each of their successes with clickable links to prove it. And it fell on its face, it was abysmal. (laughs) Abysmal, you know, it's like I was just blown away that facts and proof didn't cut it, you know, Mm -hmm. and that was revolutionary for me because it caused me to rethink the pitch, the method, the the appeal of those emails that we did typically once a week Mm -hmm. to I switched away from the facts and went to humor. Mm-hmm. And skepticism because artists are very intelligent people and they tend to be they tend to have a dark side and a skeptical sense of humor and tend to believe the downside situation too much probably so it was amazing and part of that evolution was going back with the same ad uh a month or six weeks later where all i did was add the skeptics question to each of those claims there was a claim and then the editorial you know the editorial was i like, you know two art two art shows i believe one but two that's a bit much don't you think <laughs> you know adding the skepticism and it took off it was just the use of humor when it when you get the humor right uh-huh. it was ballistically successful off the charts successful and so much fun so we did a series then of attempts at humor many of which worked and you know very few offended people one one got a little bit of uh, offense going but not too much so that, that was a blast you know it was mm-hmm. Plumbing humor in marketing to art, to artists was, you know, very interesting, interesting, quirky thing. But it worked very well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It does sound like a lot of fun. It yeah. Was
1: yeah. Fun. So, yeah well, Monty Python-esque humor coming
0: out. Yeah. Yeah. The, the emotions still sell, I think. You got to have yeah, the when, facts, but the, but, the emotions but still But emo,
1: emotions, everyone knows that, right? I mean, most people know that logically. And I've experienced it. I had experienced Experienced it earlier in my career where emotion really kicks really well. It's exponentially better But how do you deliver that? How do you find that? Mm-hmm. And, it, and using doing it with humor is so much more difficult than doing it by uh, by other means, but sometimes you have no other means of that mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah, that was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, sounds <laughs> like it. So um, as far as um, people starting businesses or going into a new venture you seem to have a lot of different um, interests. You know, there's the art, mm-hmm. there's the tech, there's other things. Mm-hmm. Um, is it really important that you know the space you're going to into really well or not necessarily to run a company? Into?
1: Well, it, it's a bit of both, you know. Um, so in the case of Artsland, I parachuted in and didn't know the space, you know, and at Symantec, we started Early on, we we started growing by acquisition, and I was leading some of the bigger, most strategic uh, acquisitions where, okay, it's software, but it's a different company in a new space. And I had to parachute in as the local guy, uh, Mm -hmm. do the combination, make sure that the merger is, is implemented successfully and carefully, which is itself a serious challenge. But also come up to speed on the market, customers, the competitive landscape quickly, because you, you know you don't get a lot of time and you don't get to do do overs with this stuff. So I was practiced at that somewhat, and it's fun, challenging. Um, so you have to be committed to figuring it out if you if you're getting into a new business area. But it is, you know, intelligent people who apply themselves can figure can figure it out because what matters most is is there a market, is there demand for what this company. Plans to make or makes and is it a vibrant market of trends the strategic trends working in favor of this company because they have to be if they're working against it let's do something else mm-hmm. so you know doing the right thing at the right time is such a big part of the whole that's mm-hmm. where tremendous success comes from or doesn't come from right Mm-hmm. So being able to recognize that, and if it means that, okay, I don't know that space enough, but I'm going to figure it out because that's what I've got to do, I have to do in order to build this business or become the CEO of it or something. But usually people are building it from scratch, right? That's the more yeah. common situation. You, you, one should not assume that because you know it and you love it, that it's going to be possible to make a success out of it because familiarity and comfort with it may or may not have anything to do with, yeah, there's a vibrant market. Yes, it's growing beautifully. And yes, you can communicate it. I mean, there are situations where it's almost impossible to communicate a marvelous idea. So you end up not doing it because it wouldn't work. And then there are others where there are unfair advantages. You know, one of our early products at Symantec, um, I started this division inside Symantec in the early days called Turner Hall Publishing. One of our early products was a product called Squeeze, which compressed the spreadsheet. You could make a spreadsheet and the spreadsheets would get too big to store on disk, on a floppy disk in those days. Mm -hmm. And so people would value the ability to compress a spreadsheet down to be smaller so they could take it home on the floppy disk and then work on their home computer. Um, We never ever made a claim that Squeeze would compress the spreadsheets in memory it did not we never claimed that it did we only claimed that it compressed it to store on disk but people kept on misunderstanding that to our benefit right and so it's just like okay you know you're not going to fight it you go with it people love the product it worked great we didn't get complaints where they were disappointed about that but that was a uh, an unfair advantage that worked to our favor right mm-hmm. and when when it works that way, pay attention, love it, live it, you know, indulge mm-hmm. yourself. And pay attention when it's the other way around because you shouldn't do this. You, should, you know, probably should do something else. Yeah. And
0: when you're I don't putting- know if I answered your question. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, so when you're putting together a company, whether you know the type of company you're going into or not, what's the importance of a team and how do you put together mm-hmm. the correct team to really get mm-hmm. something to go and get go to market and
1: so uh, yeah, I, I mean I, I have had Lou, I have so much experience of observing others and of doing this myself and of helping. Um, and when we've acquired companies, it's, it's the same thing and being acquired by other companies, I, I have a lot of learning. Um, so it's, it's the most important thing is to have a balanced set of team dynamics. So, uh, You know, for example, when you are developing software, software programmers, really great software programmers, especially the ones that are more experienced, they tend to be a bit skeptical, sometimes too skeptical. So managing the dynamics uh, where you have enough enthusiasm to actually get stuff done and enough realism to do it properly and with quality and in a way that's going to work. It becomes critically important. I mean, there are quite a few software companies that screwed themselves up royally by getting the mix of their development team wrong or by having too large a development team. Ashton Tate, uh, after I left, and part of the reason that I left was that they built a bureaucracy in their software engineering group where they had 70 developers doing what should have been done by three or four and what used to be done by one or two. Uh, And they, you know, they literally did lose the plot and they, the company ended up getting sold for a song because they weren't able to effectively develop their software. Too many people, too much communication. That's a bad dynamic. So you need small enough teams, you know, for efficient communication and you need the right balance of personalities. You know, it doesn't take long to know when someone's an optimist. And you need that in a sales guy. We need a balanced, reasonable degree of optimism in somebody doing marketing. You know, but in a accounts receivable, they gotta be skeptical because you can't believe the statement that the check is in the mail. You know, that isn't mm-hmm. enough, right? Mm-hmm. So different skills in different functions and a balance in the whole uh, is critically important. And that's probably the single most important thing is the right balance of dynamics, obviously the right abilities and skill sets, you know, that goes without saying, but team dynamics and the right balance of them are hugely important. When Symantec acquired Peter Norton Computing, I was privileged to be the leader of that merger and to lead the Norton Group within Symantec afterwards, which then became Symantec and uh, had tremendous success with that merger and with that team. It was a wonderful time. Um, I was so fortunate that the existing development teams were a great enthusiastic bunch waiting to have more money spent on engineering waiting to have the opportunity to kick ass uh, they had been in a cash constraint mode for some time before the combination so that was such a blessing so and there were, there were there was a point in time where we had i don't remember 8 or 10 or 12 different software development projects underway simultaneously and a major new version of Windows coming at me. My God, the challenges we went through to synchronize the new updates of our utility software with the new version of Windows. Mm-hmm. But my God, the guys came through. The, the teams really delivered above and beyond. It was astounding. And it was so much of a fact. A, so much of it was their optimism and belief as well as ability to deliver. Not, not too much skepticism mm-hmm. in those teams.
0: Wow. And I uh, had another question kind of similar. So if is there a difference between someone who wants to be an entrepreneur, a CEO? I know you said you've mentored business starting up and startups and mm-hmm. people in business. Um, mm-hmm. Is there something that makes a great CEO or makes a great entrepreneur? Is there a difference?
1: There's a lot of similarities. Um, the, an entrepreneur can be, you know... If, uh, The entrepreneurship thing can be front-loaded where, you know, after the first couple of years or something, two or three years, then the entrepreneur brings in a more seasoned CEO to take over the reins, a more operational, a more operations-centric person. Uh, Of course, you want, ideally, you want all the skills in one person that the entrepreneur has the ability to be a great CEO. I tend to think of them as much of a muchness, you know, as one, but... You know, if you if you think about it, I sat ne- once I sat next to the president of United Technologies, and they had about 300,000 employees. Then. this was some time ago, and it was fascinating for me to learn how someone running such a giant business, what, how do they have an effect? You know, I mean, you've got this giant battleship thing that's moving in one direction, and he, pointed, he said, you don't move it very much; you just tap it. You know, it's about leadership and tapping it in a direction. Whereas as a startup CEO, everything you do matters, right? You're you're wearing multiple hats. You know, you've got to do everything for a while. And everything you do has huge effect, sometimes disastrous, sometimes marvelously successful. So a lot of the characteristics are similar, though. um, And I'm more focused on the early stages anyway. So they come down to some of my philosophies, really, being real, not allowing oneself to get distracted uh, uh, or distort reality. You've got to know what's actually going on. You've got to know what the customers really think. If you lose a sale, you can't trust that you know, or through osmosis or that the the sales reps telling you the truth about why you lost the deal, Mm -hmm. because they may be telling you what they hope is true, or they may be telling you what they think you want to hear. You've got to find out what the facts are. It's like when an employee quits, you can't assume that you know why they quit. You've got to find out. You've mm-hmm. got to chat with them one-on-one because oftentimes there's stuff you didn't know about going on. And This, this happens even in small teams. You know, mm-hmm. one startup that I was a co-founder of with about 20 employees. Unfortunately, the CEO that we brought in established a head in the sand culture where literally every failure they had, they were hiding from the reality. So, mm-hmm. Thank God we discovered it in time to restart that company. We went down to three employees and restarted it and uh, rebuilt it to become a successful company. That was one of my most rewarding successes because of the challenges involved. Mm. But it was amazing to me that in a team of 20 people that you can have a, a head in the sand attitude, promulgated from the top, have a culture like that where they were convincing themselves that it was the competitor's fault they were giving away the product or it was the you know a mistake at the at the client you know an enterprise client saying no for the wrong reasons you know when we got when we got to the truth of the matter it was because the software was awful in mm-hmm. its current incarnation and we needed to change it so we changed it and fixed it but you can't mm-hmm. fix it until you admit what's wrong right? Right. so reality is mm-hmm. big and uh, as the team grows staying connected to to what's actually going on, not allowing, but the, people are afraid to give you bad news, stuff to get in the way. That tends to be a problem a little further on. Um, but you know, there's there's so many issues. I think total responsibility is probably one of my bigger ones. Where, as the CEO, as the entrepreneur, you have to hold yourself accountable for everything. It doesn't matter. Okay, the economy took took a dive, so we're having a difficult time. So what are you going to do? How are you going to fix that? How are you going to adjust to handle that? You can't just kill the company or fall apart, uh, fall by the wayside, and close the company because life's a bit a bitch. You know, you've got to do your absolute best to pivot, adjust, make it work anyway. Right? Pay attention. Mm-hmm. And if you look, you'll see there are often situations where companies start out doing one thing, and then along the way, stuff changes, or they realize it wasn't that great, and they pivot and do the thing that works. It may be completely different than they initially thought. That's okay if you're paying attention. You can pivot and adjust, aren't you? You can leverage. A lot of startups make the mistake where they don't look closely at what's going on until they run out of money and they have to look closely to raise more money. It's too late. You can't raise the money typically then because you ran out and you've proven that you're not competent. You've got to be asking those questions while you still have money in the bank and you still have runway. Mm-hmm. You know, that's such a common mistake is, oh shit, now we have to find out what we did wrong so we can raise more money because we can't get away with just asking them for money. And then we... Yeah, so... That's a classic example of uh, uh, paying attention, really paying attention and using your initiative and taking total responsibility they're kind of the most important ingredients in successful uh, building, successfully building uh, and growing businesses. Mm-hmm. You've got to be paying attention. You've got to be prepared to pivot. You have to pivot. You just in the early days at Symantec, for example, um, I think a large chunk of the company just got sold to Broadcom for ten or twelve billion dollars or something big deal. It's a shame in a way I kind of preferred it when it was a standalone successful company. Two companies now, there's, there's a sustaining bit and a sold bit. But in the beginning, um, we raised venture money at a pre-money valuation of $8 million for that company. That was a valuation that the VCs invested at, which was a reasonable price at the time, especially given that it's gone up you know, so much in, in subsequent years. But we launched the first product and three months in sales were one third of what they needed to be. We were losing money, we needed more venture capital. The VCs, the lead vet venture firm, Kleinek Perkins said, if you get the company to break even, we'll go to back for you, we'll back you, we'll put in more money. And so we did. We made a slight headcount reduction. We renegotiated the lease for the building. We were in too big a building got a deal to push off the lease payments to the future to reduce the current expense. Um, and everyone took a pay cut. The top, the CEO and the chairman took a 100% pay cut, the VPs took a 50% pay cut, and the rest of the, of, the, of the employees took a 15.15% pay cut. And that actually motivated everyone because we're all suffering here and they're suffering more at the top, right? It was a team building thing. We did a bunch of neat things to rebuild momentum and establish success. And we brought in fresh venture capital and we ended up making the company successful. But I'll never forget my roommate at that time, who was this guy, Mike, who was the director of sales, reporting to me and sharing a a condo with me, an apartment with me. He bought, he he leased a brand new BMW right after we put that program in place because he was an optimist, right? You've got to be. He's a sales guy. You know, you walk through walls when you're a sales guy. You believe in the positive outcome. Mm-hmm. So, and it worked out. He, he worked out fine. You know, he was, mm-hmm. there was no way I would have bought a new car. I had a nice old car. I had two. I had a little English sports car and an old Mercedes. They were fine. I wasn't going to sell out more money at that point in time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but we made it happen. You know, and it was easy a few years later when we went public. For everyone to say oh my god another overnight success it wasn't an easy overnight success it took us years to get to that point
0: mm-hmm. yes that's
1: the way it often is
0: sounds like even through the hardship that creativity is what got you out of it by actually just being so creative and thinking of every area we, where you could change something yes
1: yeah well we did an amazing thing you know we had this six-pack program in that critical period where it was inspired by a product called the uh, the AST Six Pack. It was a popular product name, and w- working six days a week, and visiting six dealers a day, selling them or training them, and staying at Motel Six for low costs of travel. Mm. Um, so. That was, that was fun, and we, we did other things. We did a lot of neat promotional things around that. We had a marvelous marketing agency that came in. They were a startup agency. They were kicking ass. We did amazing fun things. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of combined practices. Every employee went out selling and training. Every employee, it didn't matter what their role was, because it doesn't matter if you can do software development if the company shut its doors, right? Mm-hmm. And for many years afterwards, I'd meet people in, the, dealerships who had met with the programmer who did the word processor or the marketing communications lady who was out selling and she became a salesperson later. But yeah, so it was a lot of fun and it it, it was necessity is the mother of invention, right? Uh You do what you got to do as long as it's allowed.
0: (laughs) Yes, it does sound like a lot of fun. And I kind of switch gears when you're talking about employees, let's say that you don't really want to be a CEO. You'd rather just find a great company. And work for that mm-hmm. company what's the best way to ace the interview or you know find a company that you know is would be ideal to work for that's you know uh, a company doing well and how would you go to the interview and sell yourself
1: so, so so i have a lot of beliefs around that um so and this is both for figuring out a career direction when you know you you want to do something dynamic but also finding a great job a great career um, so i am I'm, de- I'm definitely biased by i'm biased away from bureaucracies i'm biased away from giant companies because that's not where the great growth comes from if you're going to if you're a young person or even medium you know medium in the middle of your career and you want a rapid progression that is unlikely to happen in a company that's growing 3.5% a year Maybe even 8% a year. This is boring stuff. When you join a company that's doubling, troubling, or quadrupling every year because they are at that stage where they have success, they are hiring left, right, and center, Life's a bitch. I've been there. I've done that. It's fun. Way The most difficult thing is hiring great people. It's the most difficult thing to find great people in a timely manner. Because you're always short staffed, you know. Just the act of advertising and interviewing takes more time, but you don't have that time. So that is where opportunity lies. So identifying the companies that are in a field that is growing and they are succeeding and they're growing very rapidly. So they're typically in the twenty to eighty employee range. Companies of that size are where rapid growth can occur. Typically, not yesterday's startup. You know, they've been around for a bit. They were able to raise some capital. They were able to create product. They're on the third release. This one started to kick off, to take off. That is the ideal time to, to join them. So identifying such companies, you can use you know, web metrics software to track companies' sites. If you know of companies in the field, you go check them all out. And look, use SEMRUSH, S-E-M-R-U-S-H. For free, you can track the rapid growth of metrics. So a company that's in a space, but they're, the trend is boringly flat. Okay, not too hot. A company that went like this and is now, is now going ballistic—it's hard not to notice that when you look, right? Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things. Then, so you identify companies that are in fields that are growing rapidly. You can search for that stuff online, and you know there's a lot of good sources that are doing things that are interesting, like AI, you know, machine learning uh, today, and uh, obviously virtual reality, augmented reality, technologies that are obviously taking off, uh, and look within to see the companies that are doing well in those spaces. Uh, that's what I did when I found Ashton Take, my first startup. You know, I, it took me ages to figure it out, but I figured out microcomputer software was the place to be in that time. And that... Then I looked at all the moving movers and shakers in my good computer software, and I interviewed with a bunch of them, and a few of them offered me jobs. And the one that fit was Ashton Tate. I was their twelfth employee. If they had been venture funded, they wouldn't have hired me because I didn't have the proof that I could do it. I was I had abilities that I could show, but no proof. And I approached them out of the blue. They weren't even advertising. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what you do. You find great companies they're hungry and you approach them out of the blue because they may need you and you end up having conversations and showing yourself to be different because you took that approach. Then when you're in the interview, you know, some very obvious stuff, be open, be candid. The biggest mistake people make is to try and put such a spin on themselves that they're bullshitting or they're not open. They're not honest. You can't interview someone if they're not open, you know, you're not getting it, you know, you're not getting the scoop. So it's a waste of time, right? Mm -hmm. I won't dream of hiring someone if I can't figure out who they really are, obviously. And any experienced manager will feel the same way. But so it's about being open and transparent. It's about having checked the company out first and asking questions. I'm astounded how few people ask questions. It's like they feel too humble. They feel like it's above their grade or something to ask questions, but you show interest, you show engagement, you show intellect, and you show an understanding of the company and its business when you ask questions. And then follow-up questions, right? That's Mm -hmm. how you distinguish yourself and you show your ability and your innate intelligence and stuff. So those are the big things for me in interviews that people tend to miss out on. Wow. Well,
0: thank you for all the information mm-hmm. on the companies i want to switch gears a little um yeah so just back to just life in general what are the things in y- your life that give you the most happiness the most joy the most fulfillment
1: so my kids have two sons one is 14 The you other know, is 22 um uh it's fair to say i have no idea how difficult it would be being a dad being a parent um but when I but it's been so incredibly rewarding. And they are my life, right? I mean, anyone who's got kids knows that. They become your life. They become more important to you than yourself. So it's a wonderful, wonderful journey. Um, that right there, that's the biggest thing. And, and a shocker, because, you know, I was a guy. I was afraid of commitment. And I knew, yeah, of course, I'll, have a, I'll get married. I'll have kids. But I didn't have a clue what that entailed. Um, beyond that, I would say enabling others to be their best be my to be myself to be my best self but that kind of that's been of that's been of necessity right to overcome my pitfalls to the extent i've been able to figure out what the hell they are uh, overcome them to grow myself but to help others so there's been some amazingly wonderful things where people and teams that i was responsible for did unbelievably great things where you know really We were, I was asking too much, you know, and but we pulled it off, Mm -hmm. and people feel so good when they do. And even me, you know, this unbelievably unreasonable taskmaster, I come out looking good then because (laughs) we did it, we accomplished it. You know, Mm -hmm. I've had people come back to me, you know, when I'm challenging them too much and say, Rod, you know, we're we're a bit confused about what you're looking for. What they really mean is, it's too much, Mm -hmm. what are you saying? But anyway, it's been wonderful. we've done what seemed impossible you know Mm -hmm. i've had some lovely experiences with that where preparedness meets opportunity and we kicked we really delivered Mm -hmm. beautiful beautiful experiences and it's i think it's helping others be their best and helping and obviously being, being myself my best but it's more about helping others i get a great kick out of that you know when people work with me and I can help them identify things that are holding them back and overcome those things. I'm about that. You know, that's peculiar to me for some reason.
0: Awesome. And any last words of advice, any advice at all on life on business?
1: Well, there's so much, but I would say, Um, You know, people say, do follow your passion, which is lovely if that works, right? But following your passion can take you into a cul-de-sac of a job or a cul-de-sac of a career or business. So I don't really, I don't support that. But being real, paying attention, and figuring out what does motivate you. So as an example, if there's time here, um, as 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 a kid, I would watch car racing with my dad and boxing, those two things. And I love both. And I wanted to be a race car driver. I had no clue if I had ability, but I wanted to. Years later, when I got into a semi-retired mode for a few years, I bumped into a guy that was racing, doing amateur road racing of cars. And I learned from him that there was an open house coming up at a racetrack. And there was a racetrack. It wasn't too far. I went there I like, oh, shit, I could do this. So I ended up taking race driving classes buying renting a race car buying a race car and spent four years of every waking moment in my spare time racing my racing and having a blast and pushing the limits of the car and my own limits and wonderful the point here is that i had a passion for car racing i knew that but it was looking back it's unbelievable the energy that i had because i was pursuing my passion so finding a passion that you can usefully be apply apply it in a way that works if, if it's helping others that then it then do that maybe that's not going to make you a living it'll make you fulfilled mm-hmm. by identifying your passion and going after it does matter greatly and if you can meld it into a passion where you make a living out of it so much the better right
0: yes, yes. well thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for all your You're welcome and um, thank you very exciting what you're doing I just, just love listening and um, we'll thank hopefully you. talk to you again another day
1: yeah look forward to that thank you very much for having me on I hope that the audience enjoyed this and uh, uh, that I've been in, of some help to them and uh, thanks very much for having me Kimberly.